dishwasher broke this weekend. That's no fun. I'm pretty upset about it. Our hot water here went out like a week ago and we were nine days without any hot water, which included our dishwasher. So I feel your pain a little bit. How did you wash dishes? By hand. But without hot water? I would heat up water in my (laughs) coffee kettle and boil it in our electric kettle, put it in a big pan, add soap to that, and, you know, like like we're camping so i feel like yeah i feel like everyone should watch at least a couple episodes of little house on the prairie so they can know how to do without hot water basic survival skills just base just basic frontier survival skills we are glad that you guys have joined us again for this week and hopefully last week you listened to our episode on sabbath if you haven't i really encourage you to go back and listen to that episode um It's an interesting topic, I think, that we don't discuss a lot of times in church and especially with uh, believers, uh, whether they're new believers or seasoned believers. Um, Sabbath is one of those things that I find to be extremely important, Uh, even though I'm terrible at practicing. And I think Travis and I talked about that, how he's a little bit more disciplined on that than I am. But um, yeah, so encourage you go back and, and listen to that one. But uh, so Travis, I do have one little thing I was going to tell you. Yeah, what's um, up? So I got to do a fun field trip with homeschool group Thursday. Yeah. What'd y'all do? Well, we went to the World of Wonder in Longview. Super neat. Um, they have like a ball pit and you have like those little crane things that you can dig in. I mean, my kids enjoyed it. I also equally enjoyed it. But <laughs> nice. uh, it was like we had the whole space reserved just for our homeschool group. Um, but right down the street from that, and I text you was the uh, Silver Grizzly Espresso. Yeah. That's probably the most hipster coffee shop I've ever been. <laughs> it's my favorite shop in East Texas. Really? Or at least it was. I haven't been there in a while, but they used to serve Onyx and it was phenomenal. I got a Cortado and their latte art was on point. Yeah. I mean, I, let me just say this. It was probably about 70 degrees outside and every barista was wearing a beanie. So I don't understand <laughs> if that's just like a thing that you do now. If you're a barista, instead of wearing a hairnet, like you just wear a beanie. You know, what's funny is I remember people doing that like when I was in college. Uh-huh. Which, you know, I realized that was seven to 11 years ago, not super long ago. But like, it's funny to me how some of those things like haven't gone away yet. It's like, I feel like fashion should have changed by now. I mean, you would think so, but beanies are one of those things I think that are going to be, I remember in high school buying a beanie and my dad, my dad being a school teacher. So he thinks he sees things through a different context than anybody else. Uh, he said, why did you buy a huff hat? <laughs> Cause he said, all I knew is teenagers used beanies to huff Freon from their parents for refrigerators. <laughs> like why would one want to do that? Um, they also keep your head warm. Yeah, they, they're great for warmth too, if you've ever wondered. So, um, but anyway, so I did, I, I went to Silver Grizzly and I just got a regular drip there. Yeah. 12 ounce drip, you know, no big deal. Kind of, I mean, $3 and 25 cents. That's a little ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I understand if it was like the best cup of coffee I've ever had in my life, but I feel like the Chemex that we made today of our Ethiopian, I'm assuming it's Ethiopian today, right? I yep. didn't even ask you. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, that Chemex tastes better <laughs> than their kind of drip. So I'm sure I could have asked for a pour over and it would have been great, but uh had Olivia with me too. She has to drink coffee with me now. <laughs> I think I told you in the text, but like, I know they've started roasting their own since I've been there. Mm-hmm. And they used to serve Onyx, which is like 
considered one of the best roasters in America. And so I just, from a business perspective, like I would be super nervous going from serving something that you know is really good to trying to do something for the very first time on your own Oh yeah. when it comes to roasting. Like, I know you're more versed in roasting than I am, but like that would make me nervous. Well, I'm sure. I mean, I think they've got a pretty good uh, head on themselves about it, but it was interesting because you walk in, they have their La Marzocca Linea, like three group machine, one of the most classic iconic espresso machines for commercial espresso that's out there. And so just for fun, you know, funsies, I went online and looked it up. $15,000 machine. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not more than that, actually. Well, I mean, that's just to purchase it. That's not including the freight to get it where you are. Oh, yeah. I'm sure the Ship initial setup. Italy. Yeah. So, because, I mean, even the, even the stores in the U.S. that have them, they do a full bench test before they even send it out to you. So, I don't know. Just interesting. So, if you guys are listening, there are fun coffee shops out there in uh, the middle of nowhere, Texas. And I uh, always encourage you, if you get a chance to try something other than Starbucks, do it. You might be surprised or you might be pleasantly disappointed. So, <laughs> uh, I would say, though, Silver Grizzly in Longview, if you're ever in Longview, it's downtown. Check them out. They're pretty neat. Um, it's just a neat atmosphere. So if you want to kind of see different styles of coffee shop, they have a pretty neat atmosphere going on. And uh, so I'd encourage you to do that. But well, today is going to be a little bit different podcast for us. Um, we've been getting a lot of questions, so much so that if we were to try to answer all of them um, individually, it would take us probably two or three years to, to answer all of these questions because they're just they're meaty and they're good. So we're going to try our best today to do a little bit of a shotgun blast of some of these questions and see if we can maybe give you some surface level stuff. And if, if one really peaks our conversation, we may vamp on that one a little bit more. But we're just going to cover a bunch of various topics today um, and try to do a little bit of answering of this Q&A. We do ask, though, as you guys are, are listening to this, please keep the questions coming. Like, don't, don't stop sending questions like, oh, they've got too much stuff to talk about. Uh, please keep them coming because some of these require a little bit of research for us. Some of them are just stuff that we can answer off the cuff. Um, and so we're going to try today to answer a few of these off the cuff as best we can. And um, yeah, so Travis, I'm going to start off with you. You've already marked some that you want to test my knowledge on. And so if we were to do that like trivia style, I'm going to fail pretty hard. But at least I'll fail hard publicly with our people and not so much uh, wallow in my own sorrows and my pillow at night. So no. <laughs> uh I think you're giving yourself too hard of a time. Um, so, so I will say that this list of questions that I've got all come from one email. You also have a list in front of you. Yeah. Um, I specifically picked 10 that I think we can talk about and not sound too dumb. Okay. Um, there are some great questions on here that I want to go do a little more research myself. Yeah. Pull out some old textbooks and brush up on before trying to answer those. So, uh, I'm going to also try not to look like an idiot on this podcast. Um, and these are all over the place. They're they're pretty random, so there's no rhyme or reason to these questions, but I did pick out 10. Yeah. And let's see, we've been going about five minutes now, so we'll see how much we can get <laughs> in the next 55 minutes or so. Yeah. So first one is, if a member of your congregation approaches you in distress, having just watched the latest History Channel documentary, um, or having attended a class on the New Testament from a local university, what would you say to them? Where would you begin? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And, and I think partly because you have to look at any sort of video documentary, any sort of 
video thing through a particular set of lenses. I don't think that you can look at some of these things and go, oh, that must be fact. Like History Channel has a lot of neat things on there. And for us to step back and go, oh, that must be fact. Um, Not necessarily, because a lot of their reality TV is also staged. I mean, that's the beauty of entertainment. You know, the History Channel's desire is to uh, entertain you and make money off of that. So if they can put out a controversial topic or idea, uh, especially as it relates to church, or the New Testament or the Bible, anything that might go against um, inerrancy or authority, that's an entertainment thing for them. Um, and other programs do this too. I mean, Discovery Channel does this. Um, one of their latest documentaries that we've, we've been talking about, about a little bit here is the one that they've just done on Hillsong Church, which I think there are a lot of facts in there. I think there are a lot of things that, that have been exposed of what's been going on behind the scenes there. But at the same time, I think that you have certain bents that they're going to push and certain agendas they're going to try to push through that that you can't translate over to every single church. Uh, I think that what it'll do is if you watch that docu-series, you're going to have a very poor taste of the church in your mouth, thinking, oh, all the church is about is making money and building an empire. That's not every church. There are some churches out there, yeah, their goal is to build an empire. Um, and that I wouldn't call that a church. Uh, any church that seeks its own self versus seeking the kingdom of God is not is not a church I would want to be a part of. So, but with that, like the the first part of that question, if, if somebody comes in distress watching that, you almost have to just pull them aside and say, okay, well, let's talk through it. Like, what are some, some points that they brought out? And it may be better even for you to, to step back and say, hey, let me watch that first. And then I might be able to give you a better perspective on it. Um, because it may just be that some of the things they said are true, but they didn't flesh them out in the appropriate context of what is actually going on at that time. Again, their their job is to, to have entertainment value. Yeah, and I think another piece of this puzzle is a lot of those um, types of documentaries or even classes, like I took a class at SFA on well, something like the Bible is literature or something, and a lot of these classes or documentaries are based in a sort of I don't know, movement's too strong of a word, but it was a a period of scholarship where certain individuals don't want to deny the influence of the Bible, but their, the, their starting point is, they call it the quest for the historical Jesus, mm-hmm. and their starting point is, well, we know this isn't real or true, like, like say, the virgin birth, like that's a big one for them. It's like, well, we know that's not biologically possible, so we're just going to say like this is a myth and yeah. they completely disregard like what you were saying with authority and inerrancy and um, you have to realize like that's where they're starting from. Like we're not starting from the same place. Yeah. And so I think a lot of believers don't know that that exists or that there's people who have that starting off point. Yeah. And then and then they see something and they're like all worried and confused because it's like, is everything I believe wrong or yeah. a myth? Or Well, and that's the interesting thing about even Quest for the Historical Jesus. There's been like three of those. So it's like they, they constantly keep bringing it back up. And there's always this drive and this mo- this momentum to keep bringing up the historical Jesus, to bring up the idea of just looking at the historical context of what's happening 
versus actually seeing and, and what they I guess what they kind of want to do at times is they want to marry the aspect of science in the aspect of divinity. And though God is completely involved in science, uh, in that there are things that are created that we know about. I mean, there's photosynthesis that obviously we did not come up with on our own, but God in and of himself in, in his divinity and in his providence created that to be in, in existence. You got people, these historical Jesus people, they go, well, we know in our infallible knowledge that this is not possible. So we're just going to use this as more narrative than we are fact. And that's where we as believers, we have to step back and say, you know, we really have to step back and say, if we are going to claim the Lordship of Jesus, the Bible has to be fact. It would be like, it would be like us saying, oh, well, we, uh, we know that this law is written like speed limits. We know that the speed limit is there and it's written and it's important, but it's not really for us. You know, like it, it's obviously there, but we don't have to abide by it. So I think when people approach scripture in that way, yeah, you're going to be in distress. When you see a document documentary somewhere and it pushes against what you grew up believing or what you kind of know, I personally, I don't mind when things push against what I know. It's going to do one of two things. It's either going to help me change my thought process or maybe research something a little bit deeper. And I might change part of my thought process on something that maybe it was what I believed was more traditionalism than it was scripture. Or it's going to push me to go, that's not right. And here's why that's not right. And so it's going to make me dig deeper. But not everyone thinks that way, I guess. Not everyone kind of looks at it and goes, oh, I'm going to. Yeah, well, it's similar to apologetics and the fact that like, you know, most people would say, yeah, apologetics is important, but not everyone's going to like go get a degree in philosophy to know how to argue the faith. Um, But yeah, so I think that's you know, a good intro to that. So if you see some documentary that seems to discount everything you believe, realize that it's coming from people who they're starting at a completely different place. And a lot of what they say is what they're just trying to impose on the text from either a historic or scientific point of view that discounts any sort of deity or spirituality. Well, and I think you even hit on the second part of that, where it says, even if somebody were to take like a new Testament class at a local university, I mean, you even said at SFA, you took a Bible class and that dealt more with the literature aspect of it. Uh, you got to think when they're doing like a New Testament class at a local, like pu- especially like a public university, um, they're looking at it from a literature standpoint. They're not looking at it from an inerrant authoritative standpoint. So they're looking at it as saying, here was the writing style. Uh, this is what they call a pericope. This is what they call a... And so they're going to focus more on that aspect, which could give you some good context on how things were written in the writing styles of the different uh, apostles and uh, of the different writers. But if you only look at the Bible as literature and you don't look at it as uh, authoritative, then it can quickly lose, uh, I guess, some value in your own life because then you're not, you're not seeing it as, a life-giving, life-breathing, living thing. And, you know, we talk about it in, in the book of John. When he starts off, he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So if in the beginning we understand Jesus as the Word of God, even though we have it written, you know, back, you know, back 2,000 plus years ago, 
it wasn't written. It was there and it was authoritative. It was living. It was breathing. We have these written accounts of that living word. So we have to trust through God's inerrancy and God's providence um, that in the middle of all that, we actually get this authoritative living word of God. And I think that's important for us to remember. But too, I mean, here's a thought on that too. So I don't know if you have one of these or not. I have one. But I have a reading Bible. Have you ever have you ever looked at the reading Bibles? I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. Okay, great. I actually know something you don't. This is fantastic. <laughs> Normally I say something and Travis is like, oh yeah, da 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 And he has all this great knowledge of, and I'm just going, oh my gosh, I'm an idiot. Um, but that's the good news about having people around you that are smart and intelligent because you always you're always growing. Um, but the reading Bibles are interesting because what uh, what several companies did publishing companies did uh, years back is they began to realize and say, what if we created a Bible that didn't have uh, chapter numbers and verse numbers all the time? So you almost could just read it like a narrative. Or, oh, yeah, I do have one of those. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Never mind. Now you know. Just didn't know how to fancy title. Yeah. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, they're good for like, if you just want like a simple read in the morning. The only downside is when people go, oh, I really want to study scripture. That's where the verses and stuff, points of reference, especially for Bible study, can come in handy. But if you're waking up in the mornings and you just want to be in the Word in some way, and just read it like a story. Yeah, you can just a read letter. it like yeah, like a novel or a book. And and to me, I think as Christians, that gives us just as much clarity on Scripture as anything else because you're just able to read it. You're not you're not feeling like okay, let me just get to this from this heading to this heading. Well, and for those we'll call who, that good for those who don't know, like the chapters and verses were added much, 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 much later. Like those weren't actually part of Holy Spirit's inspired writing. I love how you said Holy Spirit in there going back to our <laughs> references from a couple of weeks back. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a genuine thing because being able to just sit and read like the book of second Timothy without feeling like, okay, I've got like six more verses to go before I'm done. And that's the ADHD in me. Um, but I think that coming back to that, is the Bible a piece of literature? Of course. It is a published piece of literature that has been around for centuries. But what you believe about its origin gets to the point of this question. Yeah. Like, yes, it's literature, but is it divinely inspired or is it just myth? Yeah. And what you believe and what others believe can be very different. And you just need to be aware of that if you're in this situation. And this is not, I mean, understand that people have been writing stuff. I mean, people wrote stuff for years, manifestos and and their own kind of selfish doctrines that have started wars and have started cults and have started things. So it's not uncommon for people to even read other aspects of literature and, and believe that to be true. But as, as Christians, we believe that our authoritative, divinely inspired um, method for life comes from scripture and it comes from the Holy Bible, not just, not just, you know, the, you know, the word of God or, Hey, it's a Bible, but this was even like that Holy, that set apart. This is even then by stating that this is something different than yeah. it's not a historical document. This is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just for time's sake, we really need to keep going or we're going to have to oh, do yeah. this over multiple episodes, um, which we could do, which we could do. We'll just see how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is not planned. All right. Question number two. Why is the ascension the forgotten act of Christ? Oh, man. I love this question. Um, 
I wouldn't say that it's forgotten, but I think especially in like the Western church, we get to Palm Sunday and we're like, yeah, the triumphal entry, like Jesus is coming. We get to Easter and we're like, Jesus has now been resurrected and the tomb has been uh, empty and the stone has been rolled away. And so we get real excited about all these things. And then we get to that Sunday after that and we're just like, all right, let's get back to our normal series on marriage and family, you know? I don't think it's so much that the Ascension is forgotten about. I think it's just, well, well, it's like the resurrection is so important that it kind of just falls by the wayside a little bit. Yeah. But to me, when I think about the Ascension, because this was something that I I studied some in college and in uh, seminary, and I say studied, it was more of just this continual thought process that I had. And I've spoke on it a lot here at Calvary. Um, one of the messages I always do, especially when I speak to a brand new group, if I've ever spoke to a brand new group before, I always try to lay out my groundwork of like, this is where I'm coming from. Um, and I always speak on the kingship or the lordship of Jesus. And that's what I always focus on very first thing, because I want people to understand that Jesus and uh, Dr. Richard Ross at Southwestern, he would say this constantly in our classes. He would say, Jesus is your monarch. He is not a mascot. He is a monarch. And that really, for me, solidified that lordship or that kingship where it is not, uh, I don't, I don't serve Jesus because, oh yeah, Jesus is a friend of mine and, and he does all these great things for me, but he is my Lord. He is my King. Uh, I fight in battle with him. Like this is, this is my life. This is what I've signed up to do. And when I think about the Ascension, we see this life that Jesus lived. We come into the triumphal entry. I mean, great. I mean, you're seeing these prophetic things taking place. It's also so quickly how within a week people can turn on you. I think that's an interesting story too. Um, Like throngs of people, uh, crowds of people can turn quickly on you. But we come through that. We get to the garden we see the arrest and the betrayal. We see the crucifixion. We see the burial. We see the resurrection. And so we have all of these things that are being spoken about and all these things that are coming true. And then we get down to the end of that and the finality takes place. Because Jesus returns. He reveals himself to his disciples. He continues to do teaching. Then he gives them a charge. And then he ascends into heaven. But the neat thing about the ascension is When he ascends, he is seated now at the right hand of the Father. That was was his position before he came down. So to me, that's the finality of the work. The ascension is the finality of the work of Christ in our salvation. Yeah, we were thinking the same line. I was pulling up Ephesians 1 and verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so just like, I don't know, I think we we sort of stop with the resurrection because it's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, what pays for my sin and I get to go to heaven. Yeah. And we just kind of stop there. But it's like that, that idea of Jesus being a monarch, like he is the king, he is in a position of authority. Um, There's a similar passage in Colossians where he talks about you know, being over dominions and stuff. And there's some interesting things about uh, demons and all sorts of stuff, political well, powers. And we just don't 
seem to talk about that part as much. Well, even that, because I would always use that first part of the book of Hebrews, and the first part of the book of Hebrews really dives into a lot of that as well. Just the supreme nature and name of Jesus. And I think that to me, the ascension is probably, again, I don't want to say forgotten, but I say one of the most looked over uh, parts of scripture because they could have rolled this stone away. I mean, you you get enough people in there. I mean, you can push a stone. Uh, They could have robbed a body. You know, they could have done all of these things, but to have as many witnesses as they had see Jesus go up into heaven and sit down at the right hand of the father uh, to, to see the power of the Holy Spirit falling on them after a period of time. I mean, there are certain things that you just can't look back and go, oh yeah, that wasn't true. You know? So to me, the ascension is that final stamp of the work of Christ in our lives it's not just that we are going to have our salvation and that the dead in Christ, you know, will live again through the resurrection, which is what we talk about there. But the ascension is there's going to come a day where we are going to ascend to heaven and we'll be seated with him as brothers and sisters, as heirs to the throne, as what scripture says, we are heirs to the throne. Um, We are going to be ascended. So I think that's also a part of even our salvation, which we talk about in our theology, justification, sanctification, glorification. I mean, it works out in the same way, I think. Sanctification for us, we are justified through the blood. We are sanctified through the resurrection of our dead life. And now we have life abundantly in Christ. And then there's a part where we're going to ascend, where we get to reach glory. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think part of the, if, if by ascension you just mean Jesus was like floating into the sky, like, well, it's not super, maybe super, super important. Yeah. But if you're talking about that whole him being seated at the right hand of the father, like that's not just a event that happened in the past. Like he's still there right now. Yeah. It was like an ongoing importance. And we always told people when he gets up, you're going to know it. <laughs> I mean, when he got up last time, we knew it, you know, he, yeah. got, he got up, got out and we had, it was, if he gets up again, you're going to know it. Um, <laughs> But I mean, that's his position of authority. Yeah. You know, the earth is my footstool. And so I think that if we, if we ignore that part, especially coming into the Easter holidays, if we skip over that and go, okay, cool. Like I went to church, I, I heard about Easter. I'm good for until like Christmas. And then I have to celebrate, you know, that little baby in a manger. I think if we forget that the Ascension is an ongoing thing, like what you said, we're going to miss out on a lot of things in life. I think that we're going to miss out on a lot of just the meat of what God can do in our lives. And so, yeah. I mean, not just to mention like hope when the world seems crazy and which is every day sorts of implications. Yeah. Which anytime that you open your phone and read the news and you're like, this is stupid. That's why I just don't read the news. (laughs) I know I, I quit. I read pop news. I think more than anything else right now, because at least I can see the chaos in other people's lives. And I'm like, at least it's not me. (laughs) I just have a broken dishwasher. Like they, they are literally in everyone's mailbox right now. So anyways, next question. So question number three, how should we think about catechizing our children into distinctly Christian beliefs and orthodoxy? So I think before you answer that question, maybe since we don't talk about catechism very much in the Baptist world, maybe start with that <laughs> definition and then answer the question. So what's interesting to me is we don't talk about catechism, but we do talk about Awana, which was essentially like Baptist catechism. <laughs> um, so 
when I understand catechism, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I've only done, again, growing up Southern Baptist, we don't hear about it much. So anything I know about it, I have to do on my own. Um, catechism essentially is a, is a core set of beliefs that, uh, and, and statements that you study and you go through. And these are things that are just kind of a part of your life um, that, that you use to help grow and educate from kids up through. And what churches have done now is they go through a period of catechism, which a lot of times it's like elementary age through uh, up to preteen. And then after preteen, they're kind of charged with, okay, now you understand the Christian life and we want to send you out, which just means that they go to youth group. Um, <laughs> and, but catechism holds a, a big part in a lot of churches, especially high churches that uh, do a lot more orthodox and traditional values. Um, and we just don't talk about catechism a lot in Southern Baptist life. And I think that's because we want so desperately to be distant from that idea of high church or distant from that idea of orthodox that we are willing to uh, try to write our own things to kind of supplement that. Yeah. And in reality, we're missing the overall kind of view of what's going on. It's the same thing about how we will ignore certain creeds or things like that because we're like, Oh, well, we're not a creole people. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not value there. And Absolutely. so I think it's the same with catechism. I think that, to me, we we at our house, and even I think at times on with our children's ministry, we may actually use some of the New City Catechism stuff and say, who is God? And there's this repetition that kids can say God is, you know, and um, to me, that's important. What you're doing is you're, you're speaking facts into kids' lives. So think about it like this. When we do homeschool, kids are concrete thinkers. Uh, a lot of your kids aren't abstract. They're not sitting there imagining, dreaming, and thinking through abstract concepts. Most of the time, they're going to be concrete. When you're giving them factual information like that and having them repeat back kind of that understanding of it, you're planting in their minds concrete things, even though that they may not believe yet in Jesus. Just a simple understanding to know who God is. I think that that's wildly important. Because if you're a parent listening right now, I mean, how many spiritual conversations do you get to have with your kid during the week? But if you're driving them to school and you're about to get in the drop-off line or in the pickup line, you're going, hey, just for today, who is God? And they can repeat back to you who God is. And then, you know, there's certain aspects of that that are just easy. You can say a one little statement as a parent, listen to your kid repeat it back to you. And that's setting that up in their brain. And it's just constantly going to be rotating in there. So for me, I think that Baptists need to get back to some form of that. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, basically, it's just education. Yeah. Christian education. Yeah. And, and I don't mean like in a private school kind of way. I just mean like we're teaching our children like Christianity 101, doctrine 101, uh, making sure that they understand the worldview that we're coming from. And like you were saying, you know, we think of it as like Awana or I would even just say Sunday school because mm -hmm. we don't want to sound too Catholic or Anglican or yeah. Presbyterian or any of the more high church denominations. Um, but simply it is the idea of teaching children the fundamentals of our faith. And to me, I, I, I listened to a lot of, I used to listen to a lot of Odie Bauckham and then I quit listening to a lot of Odie Bauckham and then I started listening more to Odie Bauckham. <laughs> 
Uh, Vody was one of those guys when I was in college. He was kind of up and coming and speaking in uh, youth things and things like that. And then he quit believing in youth ministry, which we were like, oh, how dare you? Um, <laughs> but when you understand his concept and idea behind it, you began to go, oh, well, that makes sense. Essentially, his approach was, as churches, let's not let's not silo ministries, but let's figure out a way to integrate that all together. And so I think even at his church that he had in San Antonio for a while, um, they did worship all together. I mean, they did, they did worship in, in every aspect all together. They were collectively, they, they did Bible studies together. They did. So the whole family unit did that. It wasn't just, Hey, stick your kids in the nursery, stick your kids in children, stick your kids in youth. And then you go do your thing. They're going to do their thing. And then you guys can come together, hopefully at lunch at jalapeno tree and you can talk through all that stuff. That, that wasn't it. I mean, they said, no, you're going to do all of this together. And he was a big proponent of that. He was a big proponent of homeschool, but he was a big proponent of it's not up to anyone else to teach our kids as believers. We have to teach our kids. You can go real extreme on that. I understand that. But we, especially as a homeschool family, we're like, you know what? It is up to us, especially seeing now what the world, I used to be on the fence about homeschool. Like I used to be real on the fence about it. But seeing now what these kids, a lot of these kids in public school have to deal with on a regular basis, I would be terrified. So if you're a parent out there and you send your kid to public school, praise be to God for you because I would be a terrified mess <laughs> sending my kid to school every single day. And I'm sure it gets easier the more you do it. But um, to me, it's not because, oh, I want to spend time with my kids all the time or uh, I don't want to pay tuition or whatever. I mean, we pay tuition for our homeschool stuff. We pay out of pocket for everything and I still pay school taxes. So don't think that I'm skipping out <laughs> on anything. But I, I find it wildly important to give my children um, a very well-rounded classical education that also focuses on Jesus, that focuses on, on the aspects of theology that I want them to hopefully understand and grow up. And if they run away from that, okay. Like I can't control all the aspects of it. Um, but we as a church have to understand that there's a point where we have to get serious about the education of kids. Um, and we're not talking brainwashing. We're talking the helping them understand and form thoughts about their relationship with God, helping them answer some of these tough questions on their own without being in crisis all the time. We've talked about it with this generation that anxiety runs rampant. Depression runs rampant. Self-harm is running rampant right now in this Gen Z. And I think part of that is because kids don't have concrete facts that they can rest on. Yeah. There's not like a set worldview that everybody just sort of agrees. This is the way things are. Right. So, and there's so, more to it than that, but yeah. So for me, catechism, golly. I, well, and I think part of it is like, not just what to do, but like what happens if you don't do it? Yeah. Like I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but there's certain families that I've seen um, I'll just say here or at other churches that I've worked at who parents come in just shocked because their kid believes X, Y, or Z that mm -hmm. is totally contrary to their Christian views. And they're like, I don't understand. Like, this isn't what we taught them or we thought just because they came to youth group, like they'd be fine. And it's like, yeah, but they're spending like, what, 40 plus hours a week at school. And then also, you know, 
probably another 20 to 40 hours on their phones where they're reading all sorts of different worldviews and very quickly they can be convinced that, you know, X, Y, or Z cause is the right thing to do and that Christians are bigots and then all of a sudden the parents are just lost because they don't understand how their kid got to this point. And so hopefully if catechism is done well, like the kid doesn't believe the first thing they read online and they can at least ask questions to figure out why we think differently. And that's really, I think you hit on it. What you're really doing as a parent is you're, you're building the foundation for them to have a great worldview. And for me, even the idea that they get to think for themselves, it's not that their phone is thinking for them or TikTok is thinking for them or um, whoever they're playing with online on their video console is helping them think for them. I mean, that's, I think, another aspect that parents don't think about, the influence that whoever your kid is playing video games with on the internet that you don't know, they could be speaking things into your kid's life that you may not want. As parents, we have to be protective, obviously, because the world, the desire of the world is not to ensure that our kids have Christian values and grow up with Christian values. That's not the desire of the world. They're not there to protect your kids the way that you and I protect our kids, um, but I think at the same time, when our kids go to a school, they're around two or 300 different worldviews, depending on where you go to school at. And even though they may grow up in the Bible belt of East Texas, they may grow up in the Bible belt buckle of East Texas. Maybe let me say it that way. Um, that's not always going to be a guarantee that they are going to be enthralled with Christian values in their school system. Well, it's like, even if, even if a student goes to church every single Sunday, Sunday school every single Sunday, Wednesday night every single Wednesday. Like, that's three hours a week. And you've got at least 80 other hours of the week that you're, like, awake and engaging with other people and ideas. And whether it's, like, a commercial that really subtly is pushing an idea or a new Disney show that's kind of more openly pushing an idea or whatever, it's Mm -hmm. like they're just being bombarded with these other worldviews, other values. And like you said, it's not just about creating like a next generation of conservatives, but it's about people who actually understand and believe the Bible to be true. They understand the gospel and they want a relationship with Christ above all else. So, and that's a good point. Think about it this way. Your kid will spend roughly a a minimum. If you take them, like you said, every single Sunday and you do, let's say three hours a week at church on Sundays and Wednesdays, if we were actually meeting 52 weeks out of the year, which mostly here at Calvary, we're like 48, but let's just, let's just say 50 for funsies sake. That's only 150 hours that your kid is actually involved in matters spiritually throughout the year. They get more from that in the world in two weeks. Yeah. So we can't expect and sit back and go like, Oh, well, I took him to church. So there has to be that going on on a weekly basis in the parents and for parents out there, the church doesn't have to be the primary source of catechism. No, there are tons of resources that we can point you to that you can do this stuff at home. It takes 10 or 15 minutes. And then the, the rest of it's just repetition from there. By the time this airs, we're going to tell everybody about right now media, right? No, this will air Wednesday, but oh, never mind. But we can go ahead and kind of <laughs> let you know that uh, we do have a source that's a resource that's going to be coming out on Sunday, April 10th. And uh, we're going to be talking about it then. And you'll have access to it on that day if we have your email but uh, we're going to be doing a right now media. Uh, and we may talk about that probably next week in our podcast. Is that maybe something we bring up 
to talk about kind of the aspects of what that is and how you can utilize it as parents. Um, and even as just adults, empty nesters, there's great things even out there for grandparenting. I was looking up some of it last night. Mm. So, um, but there's going to be some cool resources that we can do for you as families that we are, we are desperately wanting you not to use these three hours a week as the only spiritual influence in your life. We want to give you as much access to that as we can. So be looking for that though. Um, it's going to be good. Yeah. I'm super excited about it, but yeah. for the sake of the conversation, we'll go on to the next one. Yeah. Let's bump it. I think this one will be fun and maybe a little quicker. Um, who have been the most formative theological influences on your life? Uh, Travis Cox. <laughs> yeah. Right. Next. <laughs> um, yeah. Church, you should be scared if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I would love to sit back and be like, Oh, this author, this person, this speaker. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit weird. Uh, I, I used to, I read a lot of like FF Bruce. I like a lot of his, thought process. John Stott, I think has probably been one of my more formative ones. Um, his book, the cross of Christ was one of those ones that was just, and then his book, the incomparable Christ was also like, wow. Like I never thought about like my salvation or just what Jesus went through, um, as being that big of a deal. So, in my foundation of understanding that lordshipness of Jesus, because it, it is, it's very important to me. And I know that not everyone is going to, um, it's not going to be important to everyone in that same aspect that's important to me. But to me, just wrapping my head around that um, was always a fun challenge. So uh, for Bruce, I liked a lot of his things, you know, he'd be like hard questions or hard sayings of the Bible. He'd give better explanation on that. Um, but me, I'm, I'm a, I like certain theologians. I like more leadership, which is weird. Um, and I think theological leadership is one that we kind of neglect a lot, especially in church. We, we focus a lot on theological knowledge and not so much on leading out through theology. Um, one of the things that I learned about in Chicago on a mission trip was the way that they culturally have to disciple there that because of the busyness of life and the craziness and the, and the way that that vast city is pulled together, they do a lot of discipleship in context. And so they do it through the context of daily living as opposed to, Hey, let's meet up for an hour. We'll schedule it every single week and we're going to go to the coffee shop and we're going to sit and we're going to open our Bibles. And a lot of times it's, it's showing people, okay, how do we do this life that we live through everyday life? So for me, it kind of, kind of became this part where I think of theology in terms of, theology through leadership. Like how do you lead out? How do you exemplify uh, through leadership on a regular basis in your life? If someone's interested in that, what's like a number one Christian leadership book you would recommend? Oh man. See, that's the other thing too. Um, or like an author that you really like. I, I know I, you've got like a massive leadership section in your personal yeah. library. I So for me personally, I like a lot of business leadership. And, and again, that comes from having a good foundation though, in terms I think of Christianity, when you have a good foundation of worldview, you can read some of these secular things and go, oh, wow. Like that's how it applies to like daily life. And so I like a lot of like leadership fables, like Patrick Lencioni is good. Um, Anything on management, because I think that management is one of those things that's really neglected in churches. I think that um, we can have all the right knowledge and you can say all the right things. 
But honestly, if you can't lead people, what are you doing? I mean, Jesus led people. He did. He had 12 guys that he led on a regular basis and they had some dumb questions and they had some, (laughs) you know, dumb responses to some things, but he didn't go, Peter, I'm about to fire you. Okay, bud. Like this isn't going to work. Like, how do you lead people through those things? And so, um, off the top of my head, I can't remember who wrote it, but there's some, there's, there's books about leading like Jesus, um, that I, I find to be very interesting. There are some, cause I'm reading more business leadership books right now. So I <laughs> trying to think through my head. Um, but there are a lot of Christian leadership books. Now, a lot of them focus primarily on like organization, like as a, as a whole, like how do you lead an organization? But I think too, just as a believer in Christ, we are called, we are called to lead that charge. We are called to lead out in battle. And I think that we have to understand how do we, how do we coach people along? One of the things that really bothers me in, in, all, in terms of leadership theology, we preach all the time, all the time about, um, you know, we need to get people saved. We need to get people here at our church. But then when they get here, if they're not dressed the way that we want, or if they're not saying the things that we want, we will quickly dismiss them or we'll get them saved. And then we'll be like, okay, I'm on to the next one. That's not leadership. That's not, that's not leading someone. Um, that's just bringing somebody in to do your thing. And then you get to move on and do whatever you want to on the other side. People look at me all the time and say, Charles, you've got your, you're too busy. You've got too many things going on. My job is not just to do my little area of ministry and go, okay, this sounds good. But my job is to make sure that the aspect of the organization as a whole is moving in the right direction. Uh, whether that be through children or through adults, like everything that we do, I feel like there has to be intentionality and purpose in leading us in the right direction and, and, and moving us in the right direction. I think that's what God wants for us. I think that there is an aspect of excellence that we've neglected in the Christian life. And if we're not careful, we can legalize that real quick and we can say, well, that's well, we have to do things this way because that's what's excellent. This is not legalism. This is just us saying, when we put down flooring, I'm not going to go to Lowe's or Walmart and just go, ah, that roll will work just fine. Well, what's the intentionality? How can we do that with excellence? Um, When it comes to our utility bill, how can we manage our facility with excellence? So now granted, people are going to say, well, we have this and this and this and this and this. Then do something about it. Don't wait for one of your staff to recognize the problem that you see and then do something about it. You do something about it. That's part of leading out in your church. Be active in serving and doing something instead of waiting to be asked or you just pawning it off on somebody else. Sorry, that gets into my crawl. But uh, So John Stott. John Stott, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, in terms of like theology, theology, John Stott has been great. Um, Bruce has been great. Um, in terms of more modern... Um, you know, you could get into some of the RC Sproles. You could get into some of those guys. You could get into, um, y- you know, even some of the uh, contemplative theology, I think, in terms of Richard Foster, uh, Dallas Willard. Um, so I think that there are a lot of different aspects like that. So it just depends, I guess, on where I'm at. If I'm looking at historical, I may look at some Bruce stuff. If I'm looking at contemplative, I may look at some Willard and some Foster, you know, if I'm looking at just some more just biblical, you know, Stott. Um, so it just kind of kind of varies. So what about you? Yeah. Um, I also recently have really got into Foster and Willard. Um, 
when I was in college, which was um, probably like the time of most spiritual growth, like just talking about contemporary people, um, I listened to a lot of sermons by Francis Chan, mm-hmm. David Platt, John Piper, uh, Matt Chandler. Uh, those guys were kind of my go-to. There was a while I was like listening to a sermon by each one of them, like Francis Chan every Monday, John Piper every Tuesday. Like I was just soaking in some of these guys teaching. Yeah. Um, so really like some of them. Um, he's controversial and I don't agree with him on everything, but I do like NT Wright. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Bruce is also good. Um, when it comes to more apologetic stuff, William Lane Craig. Oh yeah. Played a big role when I was going through a season of doubt. Um, so he was very influential in giving like some just great philosophical and scientific answers to objections to the faith. My brain just cannot work the way that he writes. <laughs> Have you read On Guard? I don't think I've read On Guard. Okay, so that's like his... I think Reasonable Faith, and then there was another one. Okay, so Reasonable Faith and On Guard are basically the same book, uh-huh. but Reasonable Faith is the like academic, let me get as deep as yeah. I can on these, and On yeah. Guard is like, let me explain it to you like you're five. Okay, then I probably need to be On Guard. <laughs> <laughs> so... Depending on where you're at in your uh, apologetic five. or I'm philosophical. Five. Totally five. Yeah. So <laughs> On Guard is great. It's a great introduction to apologetics. Um, so Craig played a big role. I feel like I'm forgetting some people. I'm sure we are. Um, Rustin Umstead, who was my systematic professor, mm-hmm. um, was very influential on me, uh, not just academically, but personally. He was very approachable, very humble, very, but just wicked smart. Um, but yeah, I think that's, you know, yeah. Smart. And, and really, I think that a lot of our theology that we read it again, theology is not the Bible and we know that. And in terms of like, uh, the writers, like theological writers, we understand that they're going to write through certain contexts and they're going to write. I mean, if you have to revise and edit and make new editions of stuff, then obviously things have changed or, or wording has changed or the way that you say thing has changed. Um, so you always have to read those with a grain of salt. I think that that's the big important thing there. Uh, so don't hear what we're saying and say, oh, go read this guy, go read this guy, go read this guy. If we ever tell you to read a book, definitely read it with the openness of how does this work with scripture or how does this work against scripture? Because some of the things that are out there that are quote unquote theological are, in, are antagonistic to scripture. And so we have to be able to make sure that what we're reading, um, that we read with scripture next to us and we challenge that reading Oh yeah, with scripture. Every single one of those people I just mentioned, there's something I disagree with them on. Yeah. Like there shouldn't be any author that you think is just perfect theologically yeah. because no one is. Same thing with preachers, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no human being other than Jesus Christ yeah. is perfect. And now... Obviously, people who are theologians by trade are trying their absolute best to figure out as much truth as possible from the scripture, but there's all sorts of disagreements. I mean, like, go back to our systematic episode and, like, how many things can we argue about and read differently? And, I mean, even within the Baptist world, like, there's Mm -hmm. tons of disagreement, like, on the Calvinist stuff, like, how reformed are we going to be? So, uh, there's things in the faith that are essential. And then there are things that we can disagree on. And, you know, just because I say someone's influential or like 
I don't know, that I like some particular person. Like, I probably yeah. have my fair share of disagreements with them, but there's good things that I've taken from them. Well, and it's hard too because there's certain theologians that you mention their name and you get uh, roped into their camp. Like, if you mention Spurgeon, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, you are a Reformed Calvinist. It's like, no. He was like the least yeah. Calvinist Calvinist there yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. But Reformers have picked up on him and they're like, oh, well, he's our guy. You know, yeah. like he's our poster child. And he's great. Yeah, he's fantastic. His writings are fun. Like, I, I don't know if you, you've read much of them, but uh, Puritan paperbacks, you ever seen a lot of those? I've got a couple of them, but I need more. So some of the stuff from like John Owen, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs and those guys, I love it because what they're writing about are the struggles that they're seeing within their context in the 1600s. And I'm going, we're in the same struggles right now. Oh yeah. You know, super applicable. Yeah. And so for me, I love, I love reading this writing that was done years and years and years ago to understand it. It gives me hope to go, okay, we're not as bad off as we think because we're still struggling with some of the same things. Well, it's like Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Yeah. And so to me, it gives me hope that like, okay, there's still, there's still work that God is doing, obviously, because if in the 1600s, he didn't just make a big old hole in the earth and suck everybody down into it and send them all to hell, then it, it should be, it should be that we have some of that grace still that is at work and is at play here. And so, but you read, you say, oh, Puritan paperbacks to go, oh, you must be a reformer. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I, but I do love learning and I love reading. And what I love about those is they're short and they're small and you can knock out a cool read in like a weekend. Um, and so Ooh, I don't know about that. The one that I've got is, um, which one do you have? The rare jewel of Christian contentment. I Jeremiah Burroughs. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You cannot get through that in a book. weekend. It's such a good book. My favorite line in that one is kind of in the introduction of the first part still where he says that God is content in and of himself alone. And I'm just like, (laughs) so think about that for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. We could literally talk about, we just need to read that book and go, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, But yeah, rare jewel of Christian contentment is a fantastic book. I think especially for this age, how are we content in the Christian life? Yeah, especially in American culture where we are striving to do the next thing or the next thing or the Almost next thing. Almost nobody's content despite yeah. us being the richest society that's ever existed. Yeah, I mean, it, it even goes back to like, I remember in T-ball growing up uh, getting trophies, right? Like everybody got, not everybody got a trophy, but like if you were to win a tournament, you got a trophy or like, hey. By the thanks. time I was in T-ball, everybody got a trophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was kind of starting. But now, do you know that when they're doing like these little T-ball tournaments and stuff, if a kid's, t-ball team or whatever wins a tournament they get rings are you serious yes my nephew got a ring and i'm like what and they try to say oh well it's so that we don't have to like deal with all these trophies and stuff i'm like no you're trying to show kids like you can be in the mlb so you got a ring in the Uh tournament we're gonna keep going baseball i'm like anyway sorry if my sister ever listens which i doubt she is (laughs) i'm not saying that you shouldn't do baseball at all but it's just at the point, let's just get like kids be kids, you know. Yeah. I mean, fun stuff is fun stuff, but um, I think it's the idea of contentment, though. We always got to strive to have something better or something more. Um, and even still, like you look at anything that you have to purchase in our world, and you're like, oh my gosh, we maybe we just need to do a podcast. We need to read the book and then do a podcast on Christian contentment. Yeah, I'd be down for that. That would be neat. So, but well, we're about an hour in, and we've done four of the ten questions. So, <laughs> let me do one more. Okay, we'll, we'll do ca- one we'll, quick one. We'll yeah. call it a wrap. Yeah, and then we'll do a part two for this episode. Yeah, we definitely next, need to do a part two. Do the next five that I've marked off. 
but this one should be a fairly easy one, I think. But I said that before. So the last <laughs> question is, what are some good resources to give someone who does not believe the Bible is trustworthy? The Bible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that's a tough one because, again, our our whole basis of faith is Scripture. So if they're not going to believe it to be trustworthy, I mean... I mean, my first thought is Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Or not The Case for Christ. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's The yeah, Case yeah. for Christ. Um, I mean, it gets pretty technical on like, what's a fragment and how many fragments of scripture do we have? But if you're worried about the trustworthiness, like if that's the thing that's holding you up, yeah, like he goes way into a bunch of the history of how the Bible became the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if that's what's hanging you up, like that should be a, a go-to in my opinion. Well, and I think too, you have to, you also have to ask that person and say, well, have you ever like read the Bible? You know, or is it that you just assume it's not trustworthy because you've never read it? Um, or is it... If it's someone who's wrestling with like uh, maybe some of the instructions of God in the Old Testament, there's a really good book. Ooh, I'm blanking on the author, but the book is called Is God a Moral Monster? Oh, gosh. Um, Let's yeah, see if we can Google, find it real quick. Google that for me. Paul somebody. <laughs> I hope it's Paul somebody. Or you're going to be like, oh, no. Because uh, we were actually, I think we were actually talking about this for one of our guys groups about um, exploring that in the future. Um, let's like, see. for example, like when God tells the Israelites to like wipe out an entire nation, including like women and children. And some people have a problem with that. Yeah. It's but, Paul Copen. Yeah. See, yeah. Paul somebody. I got Making it. sense of the Old Testament God. Because I think it came up, we were in a men's group. And, um, if you're listening, we have, we have a couple groups that meet every couple weeks. Uh, there's a mama's group and a dad's group. I tried to call the group penguin pops, but nobody really, nobody really thought that idea was a nope. good idea. <laughs> the mom's group is like mama bears, but our, our dad's group, we don't have a name for it. Um, anyway, uh, but the questions kind of came up about that and we started looking into Levitical law because Paul in one of his sermons had hit on that. And we were like, <laughs> Nope, never done this. Never done. So it was it was kind of a fun segue into some of the crazy things that kind of go on in the Old Testament scripture. And we go, golly, how do you make sense of this? And so I think we had brought up that book. But um, there's resources out there that kind of answer some of those questions. I I would, if it were me, I would want to gauge and say, you know, what familiarity does this person have with scripture? And a lot of times is they've grown up in a Baptist church. And it's not that the Bible is untrustworthy, it's that the church is untrustworthy. And because the church uses the Bible, they assume that the Bible to be untrustworthy too. Um, so sometimes people have an issue with church, not so much with scripture. See, I think that's more of a millennial problem, but I think Gen Z is more straight with scripture. Like they have a you problem so? with anything being truth due to postmodern <laughs> philosophy. That's a whole conversation we don't have time for. But um, is God a moral monster? The case for Christ. If it's more philosophical issues, like we already mentioned, On Guard, A Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. Yeah. I think those would probably be my top three. Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing, though, is especially if it's you as an individual and you, and, and somebody is saying, hey, um, somebody's got an issue with scripture, just spend time with them. Sit with them. Um, answer the tough questions. And when you don't know an answer to the question, say, you know what, let me think about that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have an answer for you on that one just yet. That's okay. I think that people would rather you be honest with them than sit there and try to make up something. So 
biggest thing, get to know them and then do your own reading up and just kind of get familiar with some things and maybe lead them through a book and say, Hey, I've got kind of a book that might help. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of thoughts on that that we could probably go into, but again, we're right at time. So, um, any other thoughts you want to throw out Travis before we start wrapping it up? No, I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> so like Travis said, we'll probably do a part two to this one and we'll probably have an episode stuffed in here too, where we talk about right now media and some of the things that you guys can do on that. Um, some of the exciting things I think that we're excited about because it doesn't just include Bible studies for you as parents or as adults. It's also trainings that you can do. And there's certain aspects of that that are like parents of teens. There are things that you can do just as parents. Oh yeah. So it's not like you have to be a leader to do the training. You can do a lot of family ministry stuff in that. So we're going to hopefully get some of that stuff designed for you guys and get it available for you over the next coming months so that we can um, give you the most resources that we can to help you be more confident in your ability to lead your kids, to lead your families, to lead your spouses. And uh, that's going to be encouraging for us. So Uh, As always, don't forget to like or subscribe to the episodes. Uh, Put on your notifications for it so it'll let you know when new episodes drop. We try to do them every Wednesday at 6 a.m. Sometimes we're a little bit late. If I don't click the box right, it doesn't uh, go out at 6 a.m., but we try our best. So uh, if you have any other questions or comments, please feel free to let us know, and we will do our very best to get to them when we can. So thanks for tuning in this week, and we hope that you have a blessed one. 